Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Good to see you. If you're watching from home, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in Revelation chapter 12. We are several weeks into our series where we're moving verse by verse through this phenomenal book that unveils the glory of Jesus Christ, which is why we're calling the series Unveiled Glory. And we've now reached my personally favorite part of this book. We've all heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard it, right? Get your hands up if you've heard it. Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. And and, and what that does is it communicates to us the raw power of visual energy, doesn't it? If you've been around for, if you've been an adult for more than about 15 minutes, you know that there are some things that cannot be communicated in words nearly as well uh, as they can be communicated in pictures. It's one of the reasons that we have art galleries dotting the landscape of of our world. In fact, I remember uh, the very first time I took my wife to an art gallery. She is a big Vincent Van Gogh fan. Uh, Yes, we've already seen the Van Gogh experience, went down to D.C. to see that, but several years back, we went down to the National Art Gallery in D.C., and that was the first time she had ever set eyes on the original self-portrait of Van Gogh. Now, I looked at it and went, oh, that's nice. I couldn't do that. That's cool. She looked at it, and after just a few seconds, she got emotional, and she started to cry. And some of you know what that feels like, because you you sense this, like, overwhelming, and I'm looking at her like, I, and and it wasn't because there was anything wrong with her, it's because the leg lamp from the Christmas story is in my list of top five works of American art. So, so we're just, my wife and I are not on the same plane here, is what, what you need to know, Okay. Um, but but here's, here's what I saw, and, and, and I think I learned this just from watching her in that moment, that those few moments in front of that portrait succeeded in exceeding what all of her reading, and she reads more than I do, she's, she's a voracious reader, what all of her reading about, the, about this man and his life could never have really communicated to her, whether it's the history of his life and his growing up years, his mental illness and battles with that, his incredible talent and use of color, his early aspiration to missionary service, his relationships, every bit of that seemed to come together for her in one moment, in just a few seconds of one painting in a way that thousands of words could not do. That's what visuals often do for us. When we can't get our heads around the, the truth that we're trying to make sense of, and when you can't find adequate verbiage to describe the reality, that's when imagery can often get you there. And it's why most people visit an art gallery more than once. I mean, if I go to the Louvre, I've never been there, but if I go there, I'm assuming that one trip is probably enough for me, right? But some people are wired a little differently than me. Some people got to go back because they, they understand a little bit more than I do about what that imagery communicates. And sometimes they'll, they'll return three or four times in the same trip to the same painting. That's the power of imagery. And throughout this whole series, what we've experienced in looking at Revelation is the power of Holy Spirit-inspired imagery. Brothers and sisters, there is no more powerful communication of truth than that. 
And we've already seen two of those windows open for us, haven't we? Today, we're going to see a third. We're going to see a third. And we're going to try to digest an image that I think is possibly the most powerful in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's the image that, in spite of everything before it and after it, is really the anchor of everything that John is trying to communicate to these churches. So this is the third window, okay? Window one, just to remind you of the context, was this breathtaking picture in chapter one of the sovereign Christ on his throne existing simultaneously in the midst of his people. I am above history, I'm sovereign over it, and I'm also simultaneously with you. Then we see this second window that it involved the opening of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, and it revealed the reality of the world that we're going to live in until Christ returns. So I'm sovereign, that's, that's window number one, and you're going to need that picture of sovereignty because window number two is here's your reality. While you're on this planet, I want to give you a picture of what's going on behind the veil so that you can see this isn't just Murphy's Law at work. These are principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness that Paul had warned us about in earlier letters. But today we're going to see a really, really awesome picture of encouragement. Among other places, we're going to go back to Bethlehem. So this is, this is that window that complements the seals and trumpets. Uh, actually, next week, is, is the, you're going to complement the seals and trumpets with seven bowls. Today is kind of an intermission between all of that. Remember what I told you at first. This book is not written in linear fashion. It's not written in chronological order. Okay, that first picture of Jesus sovereign on his throne was present tense, and not, by the way, merely present tense in John's own time, but present tense in ours. We forget sometimes that, sometimes that God not only lives outside of our space, he exists outside of our time. He's not the guy on the sidewalk watching the parade go by, float by float. He's, in, he's the guy in the chopper up, up top, and he's looking down, and he sees the end just as it is in the beginning. That's how the Lord experiences these moment-by-moment chronological reflections. And so at this most visual of Revelation, it should not surprise us that we get the view from, from that perspective of history, that God's going to allow us to look down on all of that. And so for this intermission, we're not going to be going forwards. We're going to be going backwards. Remember what Daryl Johnson said, and I brought this up in the outset of, of our time together when we started this series. The question of Revelation is not what happens next. The question is what does John see next? And what John is going to see next takes his first readers back at least 90 years, but really and truly it goes back to at least two very significant periods in history. And so we're going to go back to Bethlehem today. And we're going to see it not from the standpoint of Bethlehem, Nazareth, Herod's murderous rage, all, those, all that history that we read about in the Gospels, as accurate as it is. We're going to see instead what was going on behind the veil. And what we see, first of all, that we have to be introduced to are the main characters here. There are two signs and a promise. So I want you to look at these with me, beginning with the first sign, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So who is this woman? Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, she is a sign. That's what John tells us here. So this is not a literal woman. What this is is a vision of an outward, visible indication of a truth 
that to this point has been kept secret. Interestingly enough, that word sign can also be translated miracle in the Gospels. So I think it's fair even to say that the, of this vision that it's the, it's the revelation of the miracle behind everything John and these seven churches are being made to endure. John says, furthermore, this woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown with 12 stars in it. Now remember what I said at the outset of, our, of, of this series, we need to determine at first what did John intend to say? Because it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to him, what he didn't intend to say. Furthermore, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the first readers. And so when the first readers are getting this, overwhelmingly Jewish, or at the very least familiar with the Jewish scriptures, they're going to see this imagery, and it's immediately going to take them back to another dream. So this very last book of the Bible is now pointing us back to the very first book of the Bible, specifically Genesis 37. It says of Joseph, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. All right, so Joseph's dream has to do with the deliverance of God's people Israel. Later in the prophets, we see this communicated again through the same childbirth language that we find in Revelation. In Micah chapter 4, we read, writhe and groan. O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so this was Israel's deliverance until she returned home to prepare for Messiah. And all of this symbolism, kind of like my wife standing in front of that Van Gogh self-portrait and everything she'd read, possibly thousands of pages on the man and his art and his life, all comes together in one picture. Well, everything here gets embodied by the time we get to that very familiar passage in Luke chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And so the symbolism here is pointing to Israel, embodied ultimately in history by Mary as one of their own, because she was one of their own, and she stands in for them. And here, so here's the, here's the application from this, just from this one sign, this, this picture of this woman. Her vulnerability as a pregnant virgin, Israel's corresponding vulnerability in Egypt and later Babylon are communicating to God's people 90 years later in the first century that this is normal. You're experiencing trials, this persecution, this hardship, this is part of what it means to be included in the history of my people. This is normal. Get used to this. Now, that can be a little unsettling when you read it at first, but remember something that I said if you were with us last week, the best news is so often given against the backdrop of the worst circumstances, isn't it? It's like I said last week, if you, if you have cancer, there's a good chance, particularly with the technology and, and the advances that we have these days, that, that you can survive it, at least if they catch it early enough. But the way you get the doctors swirling and going to work for you and your, your family flanking you and all of that is first you've got to hear you have cancer. That's unsettling, right? Well, this is the unsettling news. It's going to be tough. There are going to be moments of vulnerability in your life. And then there's a second sign here that's given that magnifies that vulnerability. Look at verse 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns 
and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This sign is much easier than the first one to discern. It's not nearly so complicated. And on the surface, it is far more frightening. For one thing, the word dragon, interestingly enough, in the Greek can also be translated serpent. And by the time we get to verse 9 of chapter 12, we can see who this person is. All of this is equated with this figure who's identified from Genesis to Revelation as Satan. And the word Satan means adversary. It, it just simply means enemy, the one who made his first appearance in Genesis. And so what we see in this sign is what God told our first parents would happen from the very beginning. Again, the last book of the Bible taking us all the way back to the first. I will put enmity, that is warfare, conflict. God saying to the serpent, because of what he had done in the garden, tempting our first parents, I'm going to initiate warfare between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And we see that, that this continues to repeat itself throughout history and all the way up to the end. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And this perpetual war with the seed of the woman is embedded in this third character, the promise. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. All right, so in the middle of all this chaos, these churches are witnessing and all the pain that they're enduring and all the suffering that, that we've been describing these last few weeks together, John pulls back this curtain and says, your hope is in the child who is destined to rule the world. And as John says this, he's not just making it up. He's not just relying on a vision out of thin air. This is anchored all the way back in the Old Testament in the second psalm. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I, I preached several years ago an entire series. took us all the way, almost through the entire summer of 2017 called The Story. We're covering that on Wednesday nights right now with some folks, a lot of whom are, are new to our church family. And, and, and this section of Revelation reminds us of that larger story of Scripture that began all the way back in Genesis and that, that helps us to understand everything we read in Scripture, and that's this. God first chose Israel, symbolized by this woman in Revelation chapter 12, ultimately represented in a real flesh and blood girl by the name of Mary, and he used all of this to deliver Messiah, the hope of the world. This child was and is the dragon slayer. That's what we're going to see. This is your hope and mine because it was theirs. Jesus is our hope in the middle of all of the evil in the world, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the strife that we've been through the last 24 months together, where it is the threat of warfare on the other side of the world, and Lord only knows where that's going to lead, whether it's your own sickness or some of the death that our church family has experienced, and we're suffering alongside multiple families, even just this week, Jesus is the dragon slayer. That's your hope. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? Can we just be honest? There, there are times when you just, you just get up tired, don't you? And you're like, it, just doesn't, it doesn't feel like this picture is actually reality. 
Why does it so often in this world feel like the devil is winning? You ever ask yourself that? Why does it feel like that? Well, John's going to go on and he's going to describe why that is. Because again, this is, I believe, the greatest pullback of the curtain in this entire book. One of the things that we see as we move forward is that there was war in heaven and a defeated enemy. He said, if you want to know why sometimes it feels like you're losing, let me tell you a story. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, there's this reference here to Michael. There's several other passages that deal with him. Daniel chapter 10 tells us that Michael was an archangel and the guardian of God's people. We're told elsewhere, including in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, tells the disciples, I witnessed the fall of Satan like lightning from heaven. You connect that with what we read elsewhere in the scripture and it becomes clear. There was a battle somewhere in heaven, likely even before the world was created, in which Michael and his angels overcame Satan. In Daniel chapter, chapter 10, you read this phrase, there was no longer any place. That's another way of saying heaven was not big enough for the both of them. And so what happened is Michael threw him down, which is interesting because the verb that's used there is the same verb that's used for bouncing a ball. I want you to get that picture, right? Michael bounced the devil out of heaven. All right, this, and if you're thinking about some big dude at a bar, you are not wrong. You are not wrong to have that visual. That's the picture. All right, you ever been to a concert, sport, sporting event, or just out one night, have, you know, enjoying an evening together, and somebody gets rowdy, somebody gets bombastic, somebody comes in, starts looking for trouble. Next thing you know, some dude that makes me look like I'm that tall walks up, I mean, just shows up out of nowhere. And what do you see happen to the troublemaker? They bounce, don't they? Yeah, there's a reason that we, that we use that metaphor. They, there's, a, there's a bouncing. Michael bounced him out of heaven, but now that war in heaven results in a defeated enemy. What is the result of that defeat? Well, John tells us it's, it's, it's perpetual war on earth with a frustrated enemy. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Let me read that again. Bad news. The devil has come down to you in great wrath. Good news. Because he knows his time is short. He tried to make war on his creator and he got booted. He tried to make war against the Lord's anointed, and through all of that that transpired in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he's defeated. And so now, with, with what limited time he has left, he makes war against you and me, the Lord's people. Those who, verse 17 says, hold to the testimony of Jesus, and John says, this is what's happening to you. If you want to feel, if you want to know why sometimes it feels like you're not winning, if you want to know why sometimes you are made to go through unimaginable suffering, 
This is what's happening. This is what's happening. Christopher Rowland of the Queen's College at Oxford says, Revelation beckons us to broaden our horizons to understand the scope of evil by not conforming it to what we can manage. That's tough for us because we're problem solvers, aren't we? One of the things that makes me feel most horrible as a pastor is sitting in front of someone and not being able to solve it for them. Because I'm a fixer. I'm a fixer. Most of you, particularly, and I'm not saying women aren't like this too. I'm just saying, God, for, for dudes, we're, a lot of us are like this too because we drive our wives nuts with this, don't we? Because how many times have I come home and my wife just wants me to tell me about her day? And, and what do I do? I start making out a list of things she should have done. I mean, I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm just trying to be helpful. What did she want? Ladies, what did she want? Yeah, she didn't want, did she want me to fix the problem? Why does that, how does that make any sense at all, right? But this, this is what we want, right? And so if you're that kind of individual, man or woman, you're a fixer, all right, you want to go to the solution. I mean, it, sometimes, this, sometimes this comes out in arrogance because we really, sometimes we think we're smarter than we really are and everything is so incredibly simple, right? It's not nearly, it's not, it couldn't possibly be that it's too complex for people smarter than me, and therefore I'm kind of powerless. I got to fix it. Sometimes it comes out in really good, honest, earnest desire to help yourself or to help another person, and, and you come to this, you come to this conclusion. It, it, it can't be fixed. It can't be fixed. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek justice for the vulnerable. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fix problems that we shouldn't try to get better, doesn't mean that we should settle for mediocrity. It does mean that passages like us, like this remind us that the earth, apart from the coming of Jesus, is completely beyond full repair. We're, we're, we're not going to be able to fix it all. And sometimes that brokenness will, on one of the horses we read about several weeks ago, or one of the seals or trumpets that we've read about just a couple of weeks ago, they, th- those issues will ride up into our space and we'll get a front row seat to them in a way that makes us nauseous, in a way that frightens us, in a way that knocks the wind out of us, and in a way that causes us to understand that our enemy is still at work behind the scenes and he is raging. He is raging. That... That battle, I know you can't see it, I know you can't often feel it, it is just as real as this old boy standing here behind his pulpit right now. That battle is real, that enemy is real, and he is raging, and he is doing what he does, apparently with great power and authority. There's ten horns, there's ten diadems, that's symbolic of all of the earthly authority that is under his sway. We're going to read a passage next week that warns us against getting tempted by that power, that earthly authority. You know, if we just get this guy in, if we just get that gal in, everything will be fine. The country will come back together. It'll be, really? Be careful. Have an opinion. Do what you think you got to do. Do your civic duty. That's all, that's all well and good. It's all well and good. Do not be so tempted that you think that's the way to do it, okay? And please don't try to convince me that we're not all 330 million people right now completely wrapped up 
in our political identities. I just read an article yesterday. People are moving in this housing market, all right? More, more progressive people are moving to Austin and Baltimore and D.C. More, more, more conservative people moving to places like this and paying $100,000 more for a house than the sucker's worth. Why? So I can be with people like me. But no, there couldn't possibly be an idolatry in that. No possible way. No possible way that that's so antichrist that it's against the very incarnational ethic of Jesus. I, that's next week. <laughs> Y'all be sure and come back. It's really encouraging. But, but here's, here's the thing. We, we need to hope and live in the world that's been given us. That, that's the message here. Okay? He, he's got all the authority. He's got a tail that sweeps one-third of the stars from the sky, symbolic of the scope of his power. And 2,000 years later, you and I still inhabit that same world. We still inhabit the same world. Now, we've been largely, until about 24 months ago, isolated from most of that pain. But every part of the world, and if you'll just kind of widen your scope to the, the, the wider expanse of world history, you'll see this stuff comes in waves. And thank God it ebbs and flows, so we're not constantly under all of this all the time. But right now, we're, we're experiencing and feeling a whole lot more of this than we have in the past, probably more than we have in, in our lifetimes. That's the world. And we need to hope. We need hope to live in that world. And, and here's what John's doing. You know, well, if I need hope, why is he going backwards, Pastor? Because the hope that we have isn't in the end of the suffering. The hope that we have isn't even in what comes tomorrow. The hope we have, we don't have to wait for. That's why he takes them backwards instead of forwards. You don't have to wait for this. It's already happened from the, from, from the standpoint of, of the first century church 90 years ago. From our standpoint, 2,000 years ago. It's in what already happened. And, and then that takes us back to, to this wider use of imagery. See, the, the churches, they, they knew this history, okay? It's only been 90 years that this virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, delivered a baby boy in Bethlehem that had been prophesied. His adopted father, Joseph, responded to a dream and took that child away to Egypt to escape Herod's satanic, murderous rage so that he could not, could not be killed. They, they knew all of this. So let, let me ask you a question. If you're in the middle of great suffering and you're only about 90 years removed from all of that history, what's a better presentation of hope to you? To simply be reminded of that history? Hey, remember, there was a virgin who conceived and bore a son in Bethlehem. And you, I mean, the, the, gospel, the gospels had already been written by this point. Luke probably wrote his gospel from Ephesus. He probably literally hand-delivered this to some of the same churches. They had the written record. What did they need more than history at this point? They needed imagery. Is it better to have history you already know repeated to you when you need hope, the Holy Spirit knew these churches needed deeper revelation, so he inspires John to pull the veil back behind that history and reveal to the suffering people of God the ultimate reason behind it all. Not merely a baby was born in Bethlehem, but there was a war in heaven, and it's over, and that enemy's defeated, 
and he is now prowling around on the earth with what little short time he has left on what little short chain the the, the God of this universe has him on. And he is defeated. And yes, he is raging, but he's defeated. That same serpent, that same dragon that sought to devour devour the child has been thrown down to the earth. Merry Christmas. Because that's what this story is. That's what this story is. Someone came into this world, incarnated himself, and he is your ultimate hope. And, and, and here's the thing about defeated people. And this will help you understand something of the psychology of your enemy. Defeated people are desperate people. They're desperate people. So what else would you expect from your enemy and mine? We should expect that he will rage. We should expect that he will lie. We should expect that he will steal. He will kill. He will destroy. And he will lose. He will lose. That's the hope. Listen, I I know sometimes this stuff can be unsettling. Some of you may be suffering right now from literal demonic torment you see visions you, I, I get it he is very frightening when he wants to be it is because he is desperate remember that when you see that face you're looking at a desperate person you're looking at someone who is ultimately defeated so the question is well, all right, well how do I fight that now in, in our homes and our churches and in, in, in society as a whole Colossians 2.15 tells us that through the cross of Jesus, this baby, this child who's pictured in this, in this picture, grew up to be the great dragon slayer, and that through his work, his atoning work on the cross, he disarmed every enemy. That means that for 2,000 years now, all of Satan's heavy artillery is gone. That's what it means. But there are three tactics that he still uses, and we see it in this text together, that he uses to effectively convince us that he still has power over us. I want to go through those with you. The first is is accusation. Accusation. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses you. You're like... How do I tell the difference, though? Because I, know, I mean, the Lord speaks into my life to convict me. How do I know the difference between whether this is Satan who's trying to do harm to me by pushing me down or whether it's, it's God trying to actually purge something out of me that needs to get out of there so that I can be better, so that I can be everything he created me to be? And the simple way to understand that is this. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Your enemy, Satan, accuses you. Okay? Some of you may have grown up in highly dysfunctional homes, and maybe you've seen a counselor, and so now you know the difference between a parent who says, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're not worth anything, I I can't believe you'd be that defiant, you're just horrible, you're just a horrible person, why can't you be more like your brother, more like your sister? There's a world of difference between that parent and a parent who on occasion has to look at your child and go, that wasn't too smart, was it? There's a difference, isn't there, between saying you're stupid 
and that was stupid. Isn't there? Yeah, there is. Sometimes you need to tell your kids that what they did wasn't smart. All right? Because not everything they do is smart. They're kids. All right? And when the Holy Spirit moves, He's trying to correct a behavior. There's something in you that should not be there. When Satan does his work, he just points at you and, and lies about you. And, and his aim in doing that is to keep you sidelined. Okay? I, I cannot tell you the number of people that I have heard in this very church. Well, I just, I, 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 I don't, I just don't know how to pray. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You know how to talk? Yeah, then you know how to pray. Well, pastor, I can't put the words together with you. I, I, you really think I'm that smart? I had to go to school for seven years to learn how to talk like that. You don't need to do that. All you have to do is talk. Just start talking to the Lord. And you can start if you want by, Lord, I don't know how to pray. You know what he's going to say? Well, you're doing pretty good so far. Just keep that going. Keep talking to me. The number of people, well, I, just, I don't understand nearly enough about the Scriptures. There's no possible way. And use that as an excuse not to lead your family spiritually. And I'm speaking specifically to the men right now. And I know there are women who fall for this lie as well, but there's a lot of men that fall for this. You go like, I, I just, I don't understand it. I studied it at an academic level for seven years, and there's huge swaths of it that I don't get. None of that, brother, should keep you or me from leading our wives and our children to submit to its authority. God's called us to do that. Don't believe the satanic lie that you are incapable, because you're not. You're not. He's going to keep telling you that kind of stuff. I'm not good enough. Well, of course you're not good enough. Neither am I. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God's grace given to us with surety through the bloody cross of Jesus that atoned for our sin declares us to be righteous. That's our identity. That's what God's Word tells us about ourselves. That's the capability that he has placed within you. Too many of you are on the sidelines because you keep agreeing with the devil's assessment of you. Call him what he is, a frustrated, defeated liar. And stand in the identity that God has given you. Don't fall for accusation. Secondly, don't fall for deceit. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, verse 9, the deceiver. Of the whole world. So this is the other side of the coin. The accuser is you're not good enough, you can't do this, you can't lead, you can't, you can't pray, you, you can't understand your Bible, you, you can't do any of this. This is the, the other side of that coin where he goes, it, it's okay that you can't do that because after all, this is more important anyway. All right, this is the deceit that tells you things about God and yourself that are not true. Lies that have been injected into your personal experience. And our enemy's been pulling that crap for millennia, and he's really good at it. And in our culture, it's actually very American. Did you know that? Started with Thomas Jefferson. If you go to the Bible Museum in D.C., you can view a copy of the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson was a deist. He was not a Christian. He never followed Jesus his entire life. He literally took scissors to the pages of Scripture. Did you know this? 
Some of y'all got your nationality and your Christianity so wrapped up with one another that what I'm saying right now is just a matter of history. Basic history is causing you to doubt your faith. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. You're like, what am I supposed to think about Jefferson? I don't know. I think he was a genius. I thank God for the Declaration of Independence. That doesn't change the truth about who this man really was. He took scissors and cut out particularly the supernatural references because for a deist, of course, none of that could be true. It just couldn't be true. And ever since Thomas Jefferson, probably before, but he's probably the biggest and the plainest kind of example of this, good Americans have felt free to grab their own pair of scissors, literal or metaphorical, and just start cutting away. I don't like that part about loving my neighbor. I don't like that part about sexual sin. I don't like that part about giving my life. I don't like that part about if I, if I want to live, i got to die. i got to give up everything for Jesus. I don't, I don't like that part that warns against me because I, I started to accumulate some wealth, not telling me that I'm a sinner because I'm wealthy, but at the same time warning me against the dangers of that because, I mean, my culture teaches me that that's the pinnacle of success. There has to be more than one way to God. There couldn't possibly be. I mean, there's just no way. That blood atonement stuff is so primitive and gross. I've been doing this long enough now that I've seen it almost come in a, in a complete cycle. There is no new heresy. This stuff just goes to hell and it regroups and it comes back in a better package. But I see it over and over and over. And here's what every bit of that holds in common, regardless of the flavor that you've bought into. It goes again all the way back to the very first book of Scripture and a question that that deceiver asked our first parents. Has God really said? I, you know, in the Greek it might mean this. You, you know, I don't know. He, Paul was pretty sharp. But we have the internet. And I read this book. I read this book about deconstruction. And it told me this, or it, it told me that. <sighs> we overcome this by knowing the truth, speaking the truth, walking in the truth. But you better get with it. You better get with it. Young people in particular have enormous potential, I think, to to overcome, I, I, I look at our, our teens on Wednesday night, and I'm just, I am so filled with hope. And I know it's hard in the, in the existence that we've been made to endure these, these last several months, but I'm telling you, I have tremendous hope. They can overcome so many things that have plagued previous generations. But if anybody's failing them at this point, it's us. By what we put first, by how we live our lives, all right? They're going finding lies on social media and going to Discord and Reddit. And meanwhile, mom, are teaching, mom and dad may be teaching them by example to make discipleship one of the lowest priorities of their life. Don't give your children over to deceit. Start with the just very simple task of getting up on Sunday morning and doing what my parents did. I, I wouldn't be here today. If my daddy hadn't thrown water on me as a teenage boy. <laughs> That's abusive. No, it really wasn't. See, the thing about doing that, it's not just, it's not just that it wakes you up, because that stuff was cold. It's, it's, the sheets are wet now. You can't just roll over and go back to sleep. <laughs> and, and there wasn't, 
I'm not, everybody's kids are different, all right? I'm not telling you that I'm not prescribing a specific action. Um, I, I am telling you, don't let your kids decide whether or not you're going to come and worship with God's people. Don't let their extracurricular activities decide whether or not. You don't, don't do that. You are giving them over to the enemy. And then they go off to college and you think their biggest issue is some liberal professor? You're the one taught them not to follow Jesus. Look, I've taught in those circles. Liberalism is idiocy. Okay? That'd be the easy part. Not nearly so many of them would fall for that crap if they'd seen the example in you and me. And I'm speaking of myself right now. How many times did the old man has the old man sat on his blessed assurance watching my 60-inch screen because I'm tired instead of going upstairs and praying with my children? That's your pastor. And we've all failed in this. Don't let the next generation fall to deceit. Don't give your family over to deceit. He's good at this. He's good at doesn't come, it comes in attractive packages. Attractive packages. Well, my, my kid's not hooked on drugs. My, my kid's a good kid. My kid's excelling academically. My kid's excelling on the athletic field. Everything looks good. I'm telling you, he's good, isn't he? He's really good. Here's the third thing. Death. This dragon is red. Colors mean things in Revelation. And red means death. This enemy is out for blood, and he wants to kill. But, but here's, what, here's something he wants to do even more. He, he wants to sideline you by making you afraid of death. All right? And that goes back a long way, too. Following Jesus can be deadly. we got to remember Jesus said, do not fear those who can only kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. We have people in our churches too afraid of the world that he died to save to serve it the way that he demands. And that's why we're getting our rear end handed to us in culture. That's why. It's not because we don't have the right people in power. It's because we aren't obedient and sometimes what motivates our disobedience is fear. Meanwhile, the author of Hebrews reminds us through Jesus' death, you've been delivered not just from death, but from the fear of dying. Because even if it comes, you'll see it as gain. And here's the thing. Every bit of this stuff is real. Every bit of that battle behind the curtain is real. And whether or not you and I will be faithful is determined by one question. Do we believe it's real? Do we really believe that it's real? Christians have struggled with this. You and I, when we, when we stand today to go out of here, we're standing on the shoulders of so many brothers and sisters who have had to have this story repeated to them over and over and over and over. You and I as a church come out of the Protestant Reformation, and at the very beginning of it, we see one very bright glimpse into this. It's a hymn written by Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, Luther, Luther made a lot of mistakes. Luther did some things that were just flat wrong and sinful. Luther was right when he said there is a real devil. 
We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. There, there's an urban legend about Luther. I don't know if it's true or not, but I can imagine it, waking up and feeling this horrible, oppressive, wicked presence and looking up and at the foot of his bed seeing one of the most hideous, demonic-type creatures he'd ever seen. And his response was to clear his eyes and look at whoever or whatever that was at the end of the bed and say, oh, it's just you, and then roll over and go back to sleep. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Oh, I can't wait to get to chapter 19. Because that's what Luther was talking about. One word, like all the armies of heaven, all the armies of hell and earth, every force that has ever opposed Jesus gathers together. They're ready. All the ICBMs are locked on him. And he just shows up and goes, no. And that's it. They're all obliterated. One word. All right. That's this child. That's this child. He is your hope. He is my hope. And all of this warfare, it was there at the beginning prior to the created order. It was there with our first parents in the garden. It was there at the nativity when our Savior was born. It'll be there tomorrow when you go to work. But whatever you're facing right now, sickness, sin, death, things that are holding you back, depression that has you debilitated, I'm going to tell you something. Don't be afraid because the Savior you and I serve is a dragon slayer. Watch this. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men shake, and spill their frankincense. The cattle are alone, and the baby is awake, while Joe and Mary tremble. Oh, this must be some mistake. There's a dragon over Bethlehem. I don't know how he came. I didn't think a donkey could have borne the dragon's frame. I don't believe the census had been called for such as him. And I'm certain that when dragon knocked, no room was at the inn. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't bought a present, and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town, that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless, underneath his piercing eyes. This dragon isn't visible, with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie, or televise his flight. Unseen he stands for every power that stands against the earth. The death, disease and darkness, overshadowing each birth. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. He's coming after you. Above each crib, a dragon hovers, sure to swallow whole. Rulers, empires, beauty, joy, a flesh and blood black hole. But dragons always meet their match. They always meet their doom. A hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. 
And so at this nativity arose another player, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a dragon slayer. He'd come to fight through Hera's plot, through dangers big and small. He took on evil, sickness, death, and triumphed over all. A dragon or a baby? Just who would win the fight? It wasn't really fair, you see. The child was a knight. From high above and long before, he knew what must be done. He knew the dragon waiting here. And still, he chose to come. There's a dragon in my nativity, a fierce and monstrous danger. But fierce is still the bravery and love within the manger. Stand with me. Will you stand? Heavenly Father, may the reality of everything that's been described be imprinted in an undeniable way on our soul today. Lord, we're people living in a culture that often just ignores the supernatural. Father, make us more keenly aware of what's going on behind the veil, and may we take hope in that because our enemy is frustrated because our enemy is defeated. And so, Lord, I just pray, knowing that you're able to heal sickness, knowing that you're able to reconcile problems, knowing that you, Lord, can bring all things together, and you may very well decide to do that. We'll give you great glory. But even, Father, if you don't, and you leave us in whatever kind of struggle we find ourselves in and have found ourselves in as we walked into the door today, we would leave in the hope that it's all going to end one day and that we would have victory, that we would live in victory, no matter how much our enemy rages. Lord, I pray for protection from that evil one. I pray against his works, his effects, and I pray for your people, strength, knowledge, clarity, and obedience on the basis of all of that in the Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.